Welcome to the 207th episode of the 4th and 24 podcast with Patrick Winograd. I'm your host, Randy Winograd. In this edition of the podcast, our topics are a brief overview of Patrick's weekend predictions, our review of the NBA and NHL playoffs, and our weekly look at Major League Baseball. Let's jump right in with a look back at Patrick's weekend predictions, which are posted every Thursday on our website, 4thand24.com. And we will start in Major League Baseball, and actually only be in Major League Baseball because that's the only weekend predictions Patrick had. Patrick went 3-1 with his Major League Baseball weekend series predictions. Obviously, a 3-1 record combined. That brings him to 736 and 476 overall. Uh, that's a 60.7% winning percentage. Patrick, your thoughts on your MLB weekend predictions? Well, I thought I had a good week of predictions. Obviously, the results are the things that back, thing that backs that up the most. Um, more specifically... Uh, I tried to hedge my bets a little bit for things that results that I would like um, in the NL West. Uh, the Dodgers, I had them losing to the Rays because if they didn't lose, then I'd be pretty happy. Uh, but the Rays did take two of three in that series, and then I also had the Diamondbacks taking two of three or beating the Red Sox in the series, and the Red Sox took two of three from them. But I'm obviously happy as a Dodgers fan for that. Uh, objectively, obviously not very happy that I got that prediction wrong, and I also did think that the Diamondbacks had the advantage in the series, but uh, that did not come out. Both of the teams had been a little bit inconsistent heading into that game, so I was not really sure which way to go, but I ended up going with the Diamondbacks. Ended up being wrong, but it is what it is. And then the Rangers took two or three from the Orioles. Both of those teams really hot going into that series, but the Rangers uh, able to pull out the series victory there. Uh, as they now are only behind the Rays for best record in the AL and also best record in baseball, I believe. And then the Blue Jays took two of three from the Twins. That one kind of similar to the Red Sox, Diamondbacks, some inconsistent trends for those teams over the past few weeks, so a little bit hard to pick, but I did pick the Blue Jays, uh, and they did win two of three in that series. All right, Patrick's predictions for next weekend will be posted on our website, 4thand24.com, on Thursday. Let's now move over to the NBA and our review of the NBA playoffs. Specifically, the conference finals, uh, more specifically and exclusively, the Eastern Conference finals. Since the Western Conference finals ended uh, prior to last week's podcast. And the number eight seeded Miami Heat finally beat the number two seeded Boston Celtics in seven games. Well, it started in game four. The, the comeback for the Celtics, I should say, started uh, in game four. The Celtics winning 116-99. Uh, that game was, I mean, it really felt like it was, I mean, obviously it was the do-or-die for the Celtics, but it really felt like if they didn't come out with an incredibly strong performance um, in that game that the Heat would be able to come out and beat them in Game 5 anyway. But the Celtics came out, were pretty dominant in that game. All the starters were in double figures. Grant Williams had 14 points off the bench as well. Uh, Jason Tatum was definitely... The engine powering the Celtics in that game, he had 33 points, 11 rebounds, and 7 assists on 14 of 22 shooting. Meanwhile, on the other end of things, Jimmy Butler had 29, 9, and 5, but on 20, 9 of 21, excuse me, shooting, so not the strongest performance from him. And same thing for Bam Adebayo, who had 10 points and 5 rebounds on 4 of 7 shooting. Really not aggressive enough if there was anything you can knock his game for there um, in that game. Gabe Vincent had 17 points. Four assists, he was 5 of 10 shooting. Um, but other than that, you had Caleb Martin, again, having great contributions off the bench. 16 points on 6 of 9 shooting. Uh, only only 
Gabe Vincent with his 17 and Jimmy Butler with his 29 scoring more than he did. But overall, Celtics were able to pretty comfortably walk away with that win um, in Game 4 on the road and extend the series. And then they were able to carry it over um, into Game 5 where they were pretty dominant again. Uh, This time around, the Heat were able to win the fourth quarter to make the game look a little more respectable on paper with a 110-97 end score, but it was really the Celtics game throughout. I mean, they were the team that was definitely dominating this game. Jimmy Butler only had 14 points, 5 rebounds, 5 assists on 5 of 10 shooting. Uh, Bam Adebayo had 16 points and 8 rebounds on 8 of 15 shooting, but the uh, double-figure scores for the Heat were all guys off the bench. It was Duncan Rob, uh, the other double-figure scores, I should say. Lowry and Struess were 2 of 5 and 1 of 5. Kevin Love was 3 of 7 with only 6 points. But Duncan Robinson had 18 points to lead the Heat off the bench, 7 of 10 shooting, uh, and a career-high 9 assists. Then you had Caleb Martin, who had 14 points and 5 rebounds in this game. And then Haywood Highsmith, who had 15 points on 6 of 9 shooting uh, in this game. So some pretty good performances from the bench for the Heat, but just not enough overall um, as... Jason Tatum once again had a pretty good game, 21 points on 8 of 16, shooting 11 assists as well, and 8 rebounds. But really, it was balanced contributions across the board um, that won the game for the Celtics. They had, sorry, not 20 players with 4 points. They had 4 players with 20 points each. Tatum, yeah, same math, but there aren't 20, I don't even think there are 20 players on an active NBA roster, so that's impossible. Um, But Tatum had 21 points. Uh, as I mentioned before, Jalen Brown also had 21, but Marcus Smart and Derek White combined to lead the Celtics to this victory. Marcus Smart with 23 points, 3 rebounds, and 2 assists. As always, good defense as well as what he brings to the table. He had 5 steals in this game to go with that. And Derek White also had 2 steals, so contributing on the defensive end while scoring 24 points on 8 of 11 shooting, 6 of 8 from 3. Marcus Smart, 4 of 6 from 3, 7 of 12 from the field. Uh, and this game, Malcolm Brogdon not playing because of his injury, or actually played a little bit in this game, but only played eight minutes. So I, I, I believe he was injured before this game. Maybe it was game six. I mean, honestly, all these games in the series started to uh, blend together a little bit after a while because it was really a tale of two different series and then a one-game ender, um, honestly. But speaking of that, Boston, in Game 6, carried that momentum forward once again, although this game was a lot closer. The Heat looking to close it out on their home floor. Uh, They were able to come back from down by, I think, 10 points at some point in the fourth quarter. They were at least down by 10 at some point in this game. Uh, But the Heat able to come out, make this game really close. Jimmy Butler gets fouled shooting a 3 with the Celtics up by 2 with 3 seconds left on the clock and... By the way, a very, very highly contested play. Um, It's possible Jimmy Butler double-dribbled there, but some people have evoked the fumble rule that does exist in the NBA rulebook. And then it's also possible that the clock was off, and it's also possible that, you know, it wasn't really a foul in the first place. The Celtics had been, I would say, favored throughout the game by the officials, but then by the end of the game, the Heat had kind of gotten that to swing back in their favor, in the fourth quarter, so once the Celtics' lead was pretty big, I think eight or nine. Uh, so it was a really, really hotly debated game, but one thing you can't debate is that those extra seconds, whether they should have been there or not, did end up helping the Celtics because Derek White 
uh, was able to get a put back up that literally left his fingertips at 0.2 or 0.1 seconds left. And after the refs had taken the clock from 2.1 to 3 seconds, if there weren't the extra 0.9, the Celtics don't win this game. Um, they end up winning at 104 to 103 off that game-winning putback. Derek White, 11 points, 4 rebounds, 6 assists. Actually, his probably his worst game in the final three games of the series, but felt like he had the most impact because of that buzzer beater. Uh, the real big performers in this game, this game Malcolm Brogdon did not play, by the way. Um, Tatum had 31 points, 12 rebounds on 8 of 20 shoot. 8 of 22 shooting, excuse me. Um, Marcus Smart had 21 points again, so a second game in a row with 21 points, this time on 7 of 15 shooting. Jason Tatum didn't make a 3 in this game, which is something interesting to note because those struggles would uh, come back to hurt the Celtics in the final game of the series that we'll talk about in a second. Uh, But Jalen Brown had 26 points and 10 rebounds. He also didn't make a 3 in this game. Overall, the Celtics shot 7 of 35 from the 3-point line as a team, so not a very strong game there for them. Uh, meanwhile, the Heat shot 47% from three, but from the field, they shot 35.5%. So that was canceling it out for them. Uh, Duncan Robinson had another strong game off the bench, 13 points for him. Caleb Martin was inserted into the starting lineup and Kevin Love's minutes were completely cut out. Uh, Martin had 21 points and 15 rebounds in this game on seven of 13 shooting in 41 minutes played a lot of minutes played by the big players for the Heat. Jimmy Butler played 47 minutes in this game, although maybe not the best because he was 5 of 21 from the field in this game. And speaking of poor shooting performances that played a lot of minutes, Bam Adebayo played 46 minutes in this game, but was 4 of 16 from the field. Uh, 11 points and 13 rebounds for him. Jimmy Butler also with a double-double with 24 points and 11 rebounds and also 8 assists to go with that. But a little bit questionable that the Heat's Stars were playing that much when they were clearly gassed, and it really didn't come back to uh, benefit them in Game 6. In Game 7, though, as we'll talk about in a second, things did turn around, but the Heat overall, double figures from all their, st- from all their starters, um, and also Duncan Robinson off the bench, but all of the starters played over 40 minutes except for Max Struess, who had 10 points in 25 minutes, so it's not too surprising that they were all in double figures, and as I mentioned, took a lot of shots for Jimmy Butler Uh, and bam, to get to that point, a combined 9 for 37 from the field. They were just able to knock down a few more shots. This series would have ended in Miami. But instead, it went to a Game 7, and to be quite honest, one of the more boring Game 7s that I can remember, unless I'm just missing something, but I really don't think there have been Game 7s this boring in a long time. I think the Lakers' closeout game against the Heat in 2020 wasn't very interesting, but it was also a Game 5 or Game 6 anyway. Um, this game, not close at all. Miami started out extremely slow, but somehow, despite the Celtics leading, I think 9-4, to four, pretty much halfway through the first quarter, I believe. Uh, yeah, they were up 9-4 to four with six and a half minutes left still. Uh, the Heat end up outscoring the Celtics in the first quarter, 22-15, to 15, and it was just a sign of things to come. The Celtics had the same amount of quarters under 20 points in this game that they did above 25 points, so... Just a recipe for disaster there. Um, the Heat, 22-15. to 15, They outscored the Celtics in the first quarter, as I mentioned, despite being down 9-4. to four. They really went on a big run um, at the end of the first quarter, going on an 18-6 to six run to close out the last six and a half minutes. And really from then on, it just really felt like the Celtics just didn't have enough firepower. Obviously they do, but, you know, Jason Tatum rolled his ankle on the first possession of the game. He was never really himself in this game, wasn't as aggressive, didn't take nearly as many shots. 
He was 5 of 13, ended the game with 14 points and 11 rebounds in 42 minutes. Uh, led this team in minutes outside of Jalen Brown despite that injury. But Celtics just couldn't get any contributions from anywhere, really. Um, 21% from three in this game, while the Heat shot 50% from three and 49% from the field. Uh, Tatum, as I said, as an individual performed only 14 points. Al Horford only had 8-8. Eight and eight. Marcus Smart had 9 points. Uh, Derek White had 18 points on 5 of 12 shooting. Was probably, I would argue, the strongest player uh, for the Celtics in this game. Really the guy fighting the hardest, especially near the end of the game. 2 for 9 from 3, though, and that was, honestly, outside of Al Horford going 2 for 5, that was the best performance uh, on the Celtics in terms of 3-point shooting. So that's just a sign of how bad things were for them in this game. Jalen Brown had 19 points, 8 rebounds, 5 assists on 8 of 23 shooting, but it just wasn't enough. Uh, Malcolm Brogdon only played 7 minutes. He was over 3 from the floor. But then when you go to the Heat side of things, um, Jimmy Butler and Caleb Martin, it was those two once again. Really, honestly, think that Caleb Martin was robbed of series MVP in this one because Jimmy is expected to go above and beyond and expected to be a star. And to be quite honest, in two or three games this series, he didn't really play like a star. Um, even though he got to 24 points in Game 6, he was, as I said, terrible from the field while Caleb Martin was kind of anchoring the ship. And once again in this game, Caleb Martin, 26 points on 11 of 16 shooting with 10 rebounds to go with that as well. Um, Bam Adebayo flirted with a triple-double, but not very aggressive on the offensive end. Only 12 points, 10 rebounds, 7 assists on 10 shots. Gabe Vincent had 10 points on 4 of 10 shooting. Duncan Robinson also had 10 points on 4 of 6 shooting. And then... You had Jimmy Butler, who had 28, 7, and 6 on 12 of 28 shooting. He did have, he did save one of his better games in the series for Game 7, which obviously came through in the clutch for the Heat. But I mean, other than those individual performances, there's not much to say about this game as a whole. The Celtics just could not hit a shot. And despite the fact that they were struggling so much from the outside, uh, while the Heat shot 14 of 28 for 50%, the Celtics shot 9 of 42, shooting 14 extra threes than the Heat and making five fewer uh, I don't know why they kept shooting threes. Really felt like they needed to drive more. Maybe Tatum having that injury kind of affected them because that's your main drive threat, and all those threes that they were taking weren't as open as they normally are. But just overall, lack of execution from the Celtics, not good enough offensively to beat the Heat. Yeah, uh, Game 6 was everything you could ever want in an elimination game, and Game 7 was basically none of it. Unless you're a Heat fan, of course, then it was fantastic. So... Uh, what could have been a historic comeback could have been the first time in, I believe, 150 chances for an NBA team to come back down 3-0. Celtics, now 151. Now it's 151. Celtics got it to their home court. Uh, maybe they just expended too much energy getting it there. They did barely win it by the skin of their teeth in Game 6. And we now have a Heat Nuggets preview. Uh, Patrick, what do you think about the NBA Finals? Well, I have the Nuggets winning the series in seven games. Uh, I would have picked the Celtics maybe, but honestly, if they played like they did tonight and squeaked out a victory somehow, which I don't think is possible, but if they had played maybe slightly better and squeaked out a victory, I probably still would have gone with the Nuggets. I originally had said that I was backing the Celtics over the Nuggets, and I told you that a few days ago as well. But the way they were playing the last few games, I I didn't really believe in that anyway. So the Nuggets were going to be my pick regardless, but... Um, based on how the Heat played, I, I like how I like what they do on defense, but I don't like how their zone scheme goes against the Nuggets. I just don't think that, you know, I mean, if you watch the Lakers series with the Nuggets, Jokic was tomahawking threes with LeBron hounding him at the end of the shot clock, 
Same as AD doing the same thing. Jamal Murray was chucking in threes. And Michael Porter Jr. can shoot over anybody in the entire Miami Heat rotation other than Bam Adebayo who won't be out on the perimeter guarding him. So I don't really think that the zone scheme is going to work against the Nuggets as well as it did against the Celtics because the Celtics had a few games where they just went cold offensively um, and they have done that all season long. If the Nuggets are going to keep shooting like they did in the Lakers series, there's absolutely no way the Heat are going to win this series at all. Um, I still do think that they're going to man up and play good defense in a few of these games and make it close. And I actually do have the Nuggets still winning only in seven games, despite the fact that I just talked about it like they're going to kill the Heat. But I do think that the Nuggets do have um, that advantage, but the Heat aren't going to back down from anybody. Um, And I do think that also the rust that the Nuggets have might stop them a little bit in the first few games of the series, because like I said, they were shooting so well against the Lakers. I could see that I could see taking a few games off might affect them a little bit, have some playoff jitters because they haven't been in the finals before. And then all of a sudden, you know, it it could affect them. Um, There could be some ill effects of that rust and those jitters being combined. But I really think that once the Nuggets settle into the series, I think this one will go back and forth. There will be teams winning on their home floor, on their road, on the road as well. Um, But in the end, I think it is going to be the Nuggets who win it in seven games on their home floor. I'm going to take the Nuggets in six. Um, Had Miami not shown such grit, uh, I hate to use that word, but against the Celtics, I may have said the Nuggets in five or the Nuggets in four. Uh, But Nuggets are going to win. They get their first ever franchise NBA title, uh, which is always nice to see somebody new. Um, Let's turn our attention to the Stanley Cup. Uh, those, Those Stanley Cup playoffs in the NHL also were in the conference finals. And let's start in the Eastern Conference. Well, the Panthers swept the Hurricanes. Uh, Game four was the only game left in this series after our last podcast. Uh, The Panthers won that game four to three. Started off with an Anthony Duclair goal. 49 seconds in on the first shot on goal for Florida. It really just felt like it was already over there. But two goals on the first four shots on goal after Kachuk five-hold Kevin Anderson on the power play to give Florida a 2-0 lead, and that's when it, honestly, I really felt like it was over. Uh, But then, Carolina fought back Paul Stastny with the goal to end end Sergei Bobrovsky's 70-plus consecutive save streak and get Carolina on the board. Then, Tara Vinen scored at the beginning of the second period to tie it at 2. They kind of got their life back. Ryan Lomberg scored for Florida to make it 3-2. Carolina had one final punch left, scoring to tie it at 3. But then... Florida came out on top, however. Kachuk scored with under five seconds left to ice away the series. What man better than Matthew Kachuk to end the series? Two game-winning overtime goals and then a goal with under five seconds left in the series-clinching victory. Um, it's really crazy that if you took away the the first 50 seconds of the game and the last five seconds of the game, and you just played a 19, or sorry, not a 19-minute, a 59-minute and 10-second game, Carolina would have won that. But because they unraveled at the very beginning of the game and the very end, in the end you have Carolina, or sorry, Florida sweeping and Carolina going home despite being the one seed in the East, or at least in their bracket of the East, and the two seed overall in the East just behind Boston. Uh, but Carolina, or sorry, Florida again. You know what? It's because Carolina has the Panthers in the NFL that I keep confusing <laughs> them because it's talking about the Panthers versus Carolina, which doesn't make any sense in my head. But anyway, um, the Panthers were able to overcome both of the best records in the NHL on a pretty, pretty, pretty good run. 
to the NHL uh, Stanley Cup Finals here. I, I really don't have any other words for this one. It's just a great series that Florida was able to play. Definitely shocked me, despite the fact that I have been watching this team closely and rooting for them. Yeah, uh, yeah. you could take away 50 seconds of Game 4, and Carolina would have one goal lead, but they'd still be down 3-1 in the series. So, postponing the inevitable... Let's move over to a, let's move over to the Western Conference where there was a much more competitive series to get to the finals for Lord Stanley's Cup. Well, I don't really I wouldn't really say it was honestly much more competitive because actually all of the games in the Carolina and um, Florida series were one goal games, whereas a lot of these games were blowouts. Uh, but the Golden Knights won four to nothing in Game Three. Just really, it felt like it was over right there. Um, I was surprised that the Stars came back and they battled back, but Jason Robertson in Game 4 really started to wake up. The Stars end up winning it in overtime with some strong contributions from him and some others. I actually forget who had the goal to actually win that game, and I'm going to go check right now. But it was Joe Pavelski, excuse me, who had that game-winning goal, but Joe, uh, but Jason Robertson, excuse me, with the two goals in the regular uh, time. So, yeah, that obviously, big impact for Dallas, uh, getting him to finally score. But Vegas, um, they, it looks like they honestly were going to collapse in this series, especially in Game 5, because they took the lead. But I think I think twice, I'm pretty sure Vegas scored the first goal of the game to go up one to nothing. yeah, and then Dallas scored under two minutes later to tie it. And then the same thing happened again where Vegas scored to take a 2-1 lead and then Jason Robertson scored a goal and all of a sudden it was 2-2 and then Dallas scores a goal in the beginning of the third and you realize that it's probably going to be them who comes out and wins Game 5 and they do end up doing that, stealing Game 5 on the road and beating Vegas 4-2. But in the end, it was Vegas who came out on top, really similar to the Heat and Celtics series, uh... Not too entertaining Game 7s, honestly. I was hoping for a lot more. My expectations, you know, I was waiting all day for these two games to happen, and, you know, we were waiting to record the podcast for this. But, unfortunately, neither of these games really living up to the expectations. Vegas winning 6 to nothing in Game 6 on the road in Dallas. Uh, it started off with a Carrier goal, then a Carlson goal, then a Colasar goal, then a Marchessault goal, then another Carlson goal. And, I mean, it just really got out of hand for Dallas. They were never really able to mount quite the comeback that they were able to uh, in Game 5. It really felt like Vegas just, they, they sensed the pressure. Um, and in Game 5, they kind of folded under it a little bit. When they took the lead, they kind of took their foot off the gas a little bit, and it allowed Dallas to get those two goals immediately after Vegas had scored their two goals. But in this game, Vegas made sure to tighten up, and they just kept going. They would not stop. They would not let up. They made sure that Dallas didn't have enough opportunities on goal to really um, get a strong get a strong um, foothold in this game. And Aiden Hill only had to make 23 saves um, on the shots of Vegas for or on, or on Dallas shots uh, for them to be able to win this game six to nothing. Um, Jake Ottinger, on the other hand, had 23 saves as well, but gave up six goals with the 29 shots on goal that Vegas was able to put up there. And look, just Vegas playing a really, really strong game to close out this series. A nice bounce back after, like I said, they kind of folded under the pressure twice. Yeah, uh, Vegas looks to be really tough to beat when they're on top of their game, don't they? Uh, so let, what do you think about the Stanley Cup Finals? Who you got? Well, for the second time in a row, I, I will disappoint my South Florida native friends and go with the team playing against the South Florida team. I'm going with the Golden Knights in seven once again. 
Just like the Heat, the Panthers are definitely going to scratch and claw and fight and make sure that this series is going to be a tough one. And I really just don't think that... um, I'm really, really reluctant to pick against these teams, honestly. Um, But since the Avalanche and since uh, Boston were eliminated, Vegas has probably been the best team, maybe outside of Carolina. In my opinion, they've been the best team left in the playoffs. And it really just feels like they've been playing as the favorite the whole time. And maybe, you know, Edmonton has, obviously Edmonton has McDavid and Dreisaitl, and that line is very, very scary in that was kind of a big challenge for Vegas, but I really feel like, especially once they got through that one, they've been the they've been the clear favorites for the rest of the postseason with how they've looked. And, and just, they've had that pressure before, but they haven't succumbed to it in the past, and I just don't see them doing it on the biggest stage. They've been here before, and they have lost. I think they will be able to come back this time around and secure the victory and get their first title in franchise history, which, by the way, pretty early in their franchise's history, so that's a good thing. Already having two finals appearances and potentially a finals uh, a title if they're able to win this this year, and I think they will get that done, but in seven games, a very close series. Well, once again, I'm going to agree with you about who wins, but I'm going to say one last game. So uh, I'm going with the Golden Knights in six. Sorry, South Florida fans, but that's okay. You've got the Marlins to watch. Speaking of the Marlins, uh, let's turn our attention to Major League Baseball with our weekly review. We won't start with the Marlins division. Uh, we will start in the American League East where there's another team from Florida on top. Well, if you want to talk about surprise second-place teams, there's definitely one in this division. Um, the Baltimore Orioles, they're in second behind the Tampa Bay Rays, who are 39-16 and 16 on the season and four games ahead of Baltimore. But I will say um, Baltimore is really starting to get up there. They're They're getting close to Tampa Bay, and Tampa Bay has had... You know, they had a rough series. They didn't have a rough series against the Dodgers. They did take two of three from one of the better teams in baseball in that World Series rematch. But at the same time, they've they've cooled off a little bit. I mean, they're seven and three in their last ten. I feel like there was a point where that was six and four instead. If you include today's game, which we're not doing, um, they would be six and four in their last ten. They got shut out today by Marcus Stroman. But Baltimore is getting closer, and I really like what they've had. I keep saying this. They're a regular season team for me, but I really do like what they're doing, Um, and it's very great to see a team like that. You know, if they're going to have to be, if they're going to be a World Series contender, they're going to need some of those prospects to really be stars early on, and uh, they're kind of missing it because Grayson Rodriguez has not been uh, the prospect, or has not pitched like the prospect that he um, really is. Obviously, he has great talent, and he is going to be a great pitcher, but doesn't just hasn't really shown that yet this year, and I really feel like they don't have any top end of the rotation talent, and that's kind of what's going to win in October. It tends to be what wins in October, and they don't really have that, but for now, second place in the division, second best record in the American League, second best record in all of baseball entering today, so they should be happy about that. Um, and then you have the Yankees, who, despite all their injury issues, have climbed their way back to third place in this division. 32 and 23. Once they get Stanton back, they can really kick it into high gear. They're seven games back right now. Then you have Boston, who is 28 and 25, 10 games back. And you have Toronto, who is 28 and 26, 10 and a half games back. They're three and seven in their last 10, despite winning a series over the weekend. So you can tell really, really cold before winning that series um, against the Minnesota Twins. But Look, this division up and down is just really good. I mean, we know that. Um, That is something that has been talked about a lot. 
Uh, every team in this division would still be leading every single team in the AL Central, which we'll talk about in a second. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, unfortunately right now it is Toronto at the bottom. Maybe shouldn't be at the bottom based on their talent, but I would say that the top three, I would say honestly is what I expected coming into the year. Maybe maybe I would have the Blue Jays ahead of Baltimore to start, but uh, in the end it looks like it is going to be Baltimore is going to end up on top there in terms of those two teams. But overall, just a really exciting division to watch. Definitely the best in baseball top to bottom. Yeah, so let's move over to the not best top to bottom, top to bottom division baseball the American League Central. Where Probably the worst division, could, top to bottom. Yeah, you could literally, it's funny, when you look at the standings in the East and the Central, if you stack them on top of each other, it actually just goes all the way down. Yep, they are in order. That is the third week in a row that it has been like that, and um, that's honestly really terrible that it is that way. I was looking to check to see where um, the last place in the NL Cubs would be in this division, and... Well, if it was a 16 division, they'd be fourth. You know so. what's crazy? I'm sorry, we're jumping ahead. Every team except the Oakland A's would be in first place in the AL Central in the American League. That is actually a good point. I didn't realize the Angels and the Mariners had gotten to that point, but you're right about that. Um, that's crazy. Well, every team outside of the Central. but yeah, That's what I'm saying. But every team in the Central uh, is struggling. Let's be quite honest. The only team that isn't struggling in the Central is the Detroit Tigers, but isn't struggling in this division is under 500 and 6 and 4 in your last 10 which if you compare that to you know say the NL West the Giants are 7 and 3 in their last 10 and they're barely above 500 and that's not even good enough to be past third place so i mean this division i mean point blank it's just a bad division it is what it is um Cleveland was supposed to be the team to come out of this division and kind of be on top be the strong team but so many injuries on their pitching staff has prevented them from being able to do that. And Minnesota has completely failed to take advantage of all that with only a one-game advantage over Detroit heading into the day. Again, the Tigers, 25-26, and 26, yet the same amount of losses as the division-leading Twins. It's just insane. Then, obviously, at the bottom of this division, you have the White Sox. Uh, they're 6-4 and four in their last 10 despite losing two in a row. But all of that just to get to a 400 overall record, which is pretty bad and would be the worst record in the National League. Um, but unfortunately for the other teams in the American League, they can't laugh at the White Sox because there are two teams worse than the White Sox in the American League. One of them being the Kansas City Royals, 16-38 uh, and 38 on the season, 11 and a half games back, minus 76 run differential, not too great. Um, I would like to point out also that if you look at the Pythagorean expected wins and losses in this division. Um, Minnesota should have a huge advantage because they are 31 and 22 according to that formula instead of 27 and 26. And every other team actually goes further down in their record other than Kansas City and Chicago, but that's not enough to make up for the differential anyway. Um, so it's very interesting because the Twins should be up more than they are. They have a plus 42 run differential while the second best in the division is minus 38. So they should be up by more than a game. Uh, more than three and a half games on Cleveland. And I have a feeling that if Cleveland can get healthy before really the midpoint of the season and also start hitting before that point, before they even get their pitchers back, if they can just be a few games under 500 before they get healthy again, if Minnesota's going to continue to play like this, they're going to collapse just like they did last year and Cleveland's going to take the division again. Uh, but maybe we've spent too much time talking about this terrible division. 
You know, let's move on to a slightly better division, the American League West. Oh, it's definitely a better division. It's just that if you called it a four-team division, it'd be the best division of baseball. But unfortunately, instead of having a team like Toronto at the bottom of it, the AL West has Oakland at the bottom of it. Oakland A's, let's start there at the bottom. They are 10-45 and 45 on the season. 24 and a half games back in the division already. I thought it was crazy when the Dodgers had a 22-game uh, divisional win over the Padres last year. I think it's even crazier that 55 games into a season, there's a team that's 24 and a half games back of a division lead. It is honestly mind-boggling that someone could be that far behind. But what's even crazier in this division, honestly, if you really look at it overall in the AL, is that Texas is one game is a game in the loss column or a game in the win column off of having the second best record in the AL, and yet the A's are only two and a half games back in or two and a half games farther back in the division than they are in the wild card. There is no separation in the AL whatsoever. Um, Houston two games back of the Texas Rangers who lead the AL West, but just a half game ahead of the final wild card spot with the Yankees. So. It's going to be a tight race in the AL in the AL West all season long, definitely, and also in the AL overall. Um, interestingly enough, Texas, based on run differential, actually now has a better run differential in the race. That was something that you didn't think you'd see for a while, but Texas just putting up runs on the board like crazy and actually better at run prevention than Tampa Bay, which is surprising. Uh, 206 runs allowed on the year to the race, 215. They've scored 329 compared to the Rays 335. I believe better in terms of runs per game as well. So just a really strong offense that Texas has. Marcus Simeon has a 17-game hit streak going, tied for the longest in baseball because of an NL an NL West counterpart that he has. Um, but look, Seager and Simeon just the combo is there. It's doing well. Seager had missed a few games for injuries, same as Degrom. But in the end, Nathan Eovaldi has anchored a pretty strong rotation. For the Rangers, John Gray has had a good season. Andrew Heaney has been good enough. He's given them enough length that with the rest of the guys they have in the rotation, their bullpen has stayed solid all year. And really, Texas is just having a great year, and it really feels sustainable, honestly. Um, I don't know if it's sustainable to win the division because Houston has really picked it up recently, 8-2 and two in their last 10. They've won three in a row. I'm really interested to see those two teams play each other if they do eventually. or no, Obviously, they will eventually, but if they do soon again. Um, and then in the rest of this division, you have Seattle at 28 and 25. They're finally trending in the right direction, seven and three in their last 10. And the Angels, who are 28 and 26, uh, they are they've lost three in a row, but they're six and four in their last 10. So overall, having a decent season, but the Angels still have not found a way to get over the hump, despite the fact that they have an upgraded roster this season. Still a few games back of the wild card, and we'll see if they're able to make the playoffs. Yeah, I can't believe Oakland 0 and 10 in their last 10 games. It's just just when you think they can't get any worse. Well, they've lost 11 games in a row, actually. They get worse. But yeah, they've lost, a, lost 11 in a row. Insanity. Uh, all right. Uh, you want to go see Major League Baseball cheap? Go to Oakland. Let's move over to the National League, starting in the East. Well, it's the Atlanta Braves at the top of this division. Every team in this division has had an up-and-down last 10 games. Atlanta with a 5-5 five and five record, which is tied for worst, but also tied for second best in this division. Um they are four and a half games ahead of the Miami Marlins, who have won three games in a row but are still five and five in their last ten. Uh, they are going to play the Padres next, which is interesting because the Padres are uh, very bad right now, honestly, to put it bluntly. But Miami above 500 really just because of that um, record in one-run games. They have the same expected win-loss record as the Chicago White Sox. They have the same run differential. Actually, sorry, they have the same 
same run differential or same expected wins loss as the Cleveland Guardians and the same same record three worse run differential but yet one of them is six games under 500 one of them is two games above that record in one run games uh, for the Marlins has really pulled them through it really feels like this team is going to end up exactly like the Mariners did two years ago where they're just a season away from their young prospects being good enough to be a contending team and they're not going to make the playoffs just yet but they're going to end up in a pretty tight chase and they're going to be one of those teams that has a terrible run differential all season long but somehow is above 500. I feel like the sample size is long enough to say that Miami will be one of those teams. Seattle was able to keep it up. I believe they had like a minus 81 run differential by the end of the season, while Toronto had like a plus 90, and they were still and they still ended up tied um, in the wild card race. And then obviously the Yankees and the Red Sox made the wild card that season anyway, so it didn't matter. But rest of this division, you have the Mets. They've lost two in a row, but they had the best last 10 record in this division at 27 and 27 um, overall, six and four in their last 10. Then you have the Phillies, had a pretty rough game yesterday, but 5-5 five five in their last 10, 25-28. They have Bryce Harper back, so hopefully they should be trending in the right direction soon. And the Washington Nationals, who have climbed out of the basement of the National League. Uh, they, are, they now have the second-worst record in the National League. We'll talk about the worst one in a second, but 23-30, a respectable last-place team. All right, let's move over again to the weakest division in the league, the NL Central. Well, it's the weakest one for sure because... Uh, these teams, their runs scored look like, at least at the top of the division, look like the runs allowed from top teams like the Rangers uh, and the Rays. For comparison, the Rays have allowed 215 runs this season. Uh, the Rangers have allowed 206. One of the best pitching staffs, the Astros, has allowed 181. Well, Milwaukee is at the top of this division despite only scoring 214 on their own this year. Under four runs per game, which is crazy. Um, they're three games above 500. And Pittsburgh really has been on a downward slide for a while now. Uh, since they got to that point where they had the second-best record in baseball, it feels like they've been on a never-ending fall. They are 26-26 and 26 on the season, back to 500, probably going back under soon, as bad as that is to say, because, honestly, they were a pretty fun story at the beginning of the year uh, while they were good, but now one and a half games back. But there's still a surprise in third in the Central. Every single time, every week, you look, and it's a different team, and it's very, very odd. But this week... It's the Cincinnati Reds. They have brought their prospects up. Their prospects have played well, and all of a sudden, 24-29 and 29 on the season, no Joey Votto needed. Uh, the worst run differential in this division, but hey, the Brewers have the second worst, and they're in first place. Uh, but then you have St. Louis right on their heels, also 5-5 five five in their last 10, 24-31. Same amount of wins as Cincinnati, but um, way but two, two more losses. Then at the bottom of this division, you have the worst record in the National League, it is the Chicago Cubs. They got swept this weekend by the Cincinnati Reds. Uh, that is not something you want to be able to say, but that is something that indeed did happen, and they now have the worst record in the National League at 22-33-7 and and in their last 10. Yeah, hard to believe the Cubs actually started off looking strong at the beginning of the year, and they've just fallen off a cliff. Uh, maybe since that Dodger weekend series that we were at at Wrigley Field. Speaking of the Dodgers, let's move on to the National League West. The Dodgers in first place at 32-22, and 22, the best record in the National League. Or, sorry, actually, it's the Braves now. I should say that. Dodgers did have it when they left Atlanta, but Atlanta beating up on the Phillies over the weekend while the Rays took the series from the Dodgers has flipped that one on its head. Dodgers, though, playing Washington right now, so that probably should flip by the beginning of the week. Uh, but then you have Arizona in second place, still a, still able to hold it down. The Dodgers only 4-10, sorry, 4-6 in their last 10 
while Arizona is 6-4 and four in their last 10 to get to one and a half games back, and San Francisco, 27-26 and 26 on the year, 7-3 and three in their last 10, and all of a sudden, I didn't say their name before San Diego on purpose, I said it because they are the team in third place, San Diego has fallen all the way down to 24-29, and 29. they are 7.5 games back of the Dodgers now in fourth place, for another year in a row, however many years it's been, the Dodgers play the Padres, and the Padres forget how to play baseball right after after the Dodgers beat them in the series. Um, and now we're at the point where Colorado is a win away from being ahead of the Padres, and the Padres could be in last in this division, which, honestly, given the talent that they have on their roster, that is a generational collapse, um, considering that the Rockies have an old Chris Bryant, C.J. Crone, who's really, I mean... You know, there's the Wally Zerbiak comment that's famous about Tyrese Halliburton being a wannabe all-star, but maybe C.J. Crone is, is an actual wannabe an all-star. Uh, but look, the Rockies don't have anything on their roster to be better than the Padres. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to sugarcoat it at all. And frankly, nor do the Giants. But here we are sitting at the point where the Giants are above 500, above the above uh, the Padres, excuse me, by more games than the Dodgers are leading Arizona by, which is just crazy to say, but it's still just insane. Uh, but look, I don't know how the Padres are here, but they are here. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if they are last place in this division in a week or two, but they're not currently. They're still holding, staying afloat at fourth, but they don't even have injuries to blame. They are probably the least beaten up team in this division. Maybe the Giants are healthier, but based on some of the names I've been seeing in their lineups, I don't really believe that either. Uh, but Padres, really no excuse, just having a terrible season. Yep, no excuse. And uh, nobody's going to cry river for that team. All right, that wraps up our look at Major League Baseball for the week. It also wraps this edition of the 4th and 24 podcast. Please be sure to check out our next podcast, which will still be on a Monday. We're back to Mondays for the summer. So the next podcast will be on Monday, June 5th, where we will recap Patrick's weekend predictions and continue our review of NBA and NHL playoff action this time looking at the NBA Finals and the Stanley Cup Finals, and also have our weekly look at Major League Baseball. In the meantime, please be sure to check out Patrick's additional content, including his picks for next weekend's games that will be posted, as always, on Thursday, and his Major League Baseball power rankings that will be updated on Wednesday. All that content's on our website, 4thand24.com. That's the number 4, T-H-A-N-D, the number 24.com. Thank you for listening.